0: Alright, well welcome to the Mill Church. If you're visiting with us today, and I see some visitors here, I want to ask you if you would kindly oblige, you'd appreciate it if you would fill out a welcome card, the slash welcome, the slash welcome on your smartphone, you can do that at any time during the service. If you would be so kind, that way we know who you are and can remember your names a little easier. We'd appreciate that very much. If you like a hard copy format, there is one available at the back on the high top table. And you can fill it out if you would before you leave and drop it in the box. We'd again uh, thank you for, uh, for doing that. Uh, I don't normally, well, I shouldn't say I don't normally. About every three to four weeks, I'll lead worship here on average. And uh, we do have other worship leaders. This reminds me of the early years of the Mill Church where we didn't have another worship leader. And I would sing and preach every Sunday. And I'm so glad, so glad that isn't the case. Although I love leading worship, it's just a lot. It's just a lot to keep track of. So uh, sometimes you... uh, You're supposed to say we're going to sing our next song and you say open to Daniel chapter 10 or something weird like that right in the middle, you know, or vice versa. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic. But I'm going to jump into our last week. Everybody say last week. Last week in the book of Daniel, we've been in this book, this Old Testament book for uh, roughly 10 weeks now. And this is our last week. If you're visiting, all we do is march through books of the Bible, um, generally speaking. So we'll occasionally do a topical series. I would say it's it's uh, fairly rare. Otherwise, we just kind of uh, pick an Old Testament book, a New Testament book, work through it, talk about what it means, what the practical implication is for us, for our lives. So if you brought your Bible, you can turn to the book of Daniel for the last week in the series. I think there are some great stories Like the story that Daniel says will unfold in the end of time, we're going to get into uh, some more end-time prophecy this morning. How many of you know pastors just love preaching on end-times prophecy? It's just so easy and, you know, just the interpretations are so clear, right? No, It's, it's quite a challenge. Um, But we believe what the Scriptures say about themselves, which is that every uh, word that proceeds out of the mouth of God or every word in the Scripture, all Scriptures, are useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God, that's you and I, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's profitable. It matters. That's why we do this. And I will tell you that um, there there are a number of great stories like the one that Daniel is going to tell us will unfold in the future that at the time uh, feel chaotic um, in literature, tedious, tragic, only to learn later in the story that it was all part of the plan. How many of you um, are 80s kids? Anybody besides myself? Okay, we have a few 80s kids in the room. How many of you remember Karate Kid? with Daniel Larusa and Mr. Miyagi, yes? How many of you remember Wax On, Wax Off, okay? So you thought in the middle of that film, what in the world is this old man doing? Trying to get free labor out of this young, vulnerable man, having him wash his car and paint the fence, and my goodness, you know? And by the end of the film, you realize, wow, those were actually karate moves that helped him in a tournament that the film culminated in. So, obviously, Mr. Miyagi had a plan. Uh, it seemed silly. If you'll remember, one of my favorite um, animated films is, um, is, uh, the one <laughs> is one that I can't remember the title of, uh, oddly enough. Uh, but Lightning McQueen, right? Cars. Lightning McQueen. And where does Lightning McQueen go? Well, he goes to Radiator Springs. That's where he finds himself stuck. And he's laying asphalt, right? And he's like, what's happened to my life? You know? And it's there that he meets a lifelong friend by the name of who? Mater, right? This works out good for Lightning McQueen in the end. He he falls in love and, and he uh, meets all these people that will come around him and help him get to the Proverbial top, and and then in uh, in Harry Potter, my son Levi loves the Harry Potter books. There's this character named Dumbledore, this wise sage, and and he gets to our shock killed, right? And and this guy Severus. Uh, aims this uh, wand at him you know and and poof, and poof and 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 this ultimate act of betrayal and and evil is is present and you're wondering what is happening it's triumphing over good and and all hope is lost and that is of course until the reader learns that Dumbledore was already dying it was only through his death it was only through his death that he could grant Harry Potter um this power that could ultimately defeat Voldemort, right? So it seemed rough, but it had a good ending. So we saw this in the Olympics. The commentator comes on and says, um, now just because we're in uh, the seventh, eighth laps of this race, effectively, and just because the runner is in 14th place, uh, doesn't mean that the runner isn't going to win. This race. And sure enough, what happens? This runner is conserving all kinds of energy, comes flying out of nowhere past all of the 13 uh, individuals who's ahead and and wins. It happens. The point is that a lot of things, a lot of things that turn out quite well actually uh, have sad and confusing chapters. And still, they're all part of the plan. We're going to see this morning that Daniel's last three chapters are dark. He says things are going to get darker. He says, yet, don't despair because it's all according to God's plan. Again, this is our last week in a book that's all about shining with an uncommon hope in a dark world. So make no mistake about it. The backdrop of this book is somber. It's heavy. Several of Daniel's prophetic visions tell us, again, it's going to get, it's going to fall into disrepair. Things are going to get uh, really, really ugly in the future of the human race. This is just what he tells us. This is God's revealed word to humanity. Um, It's not that I'm a Debbie Downer. It's that this is what the Bible says, if we're truthful. I know a number of people think that the world is gradually progressing toward this utopia where eventually we will have no more political problems. We will have no more uh, economic problems. Everybody's going to live in abundance and prosperity, some think. And, and we're going to be united under this one global umbrella, this one global village, right? And it sounds awesome, doesn't it? It sounds wonderful. Truth be told, that's kind of what heaven's going to be like. Eventually we will be under one big global umbrella with every human being that's ever lived, all the saints that have come before us. But it's not going to be like people think. It's going to happen like the Bible foretells. Um, Nor is it, by the way, uh, where Jesus uh, says this this projection of, of good, this utopia, nor is that what Jesus says is going to happen in the book of Matthew, Uh, nor is it what John tells us is going to happen if we read the book of of Revelation. The Bible writers, in fact, consistently tell us that we're headed downhill. So with that, I'm going to conclude the sermon. Let's pray. Just kidding. Um, If you have your Bibles, again, Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to give you the bad news. Slash good news conclusion of the book. These last three chapters are Daniel's record of his final visions. There's a lot of detail. We're not going to be able to geek out on all of these details. It would take us months to look deeply into the book of Daniel. We'll touch on a few of them. And our primary purpose is to get to the bigger point. Um, which is why Daniel tells us these things. Martin Luther would say about this book or this passage, Daniel concludes the record of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy, pointing to the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. Whoever wants to study them profitably dare not focus his attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but seek comfort in the Savior Jesus Christ whom they portray, and in the deliverance he brings from sin and its misery. End quote. So Martin Luther will say, effectively, hey, if you listen to the prophecies, you're gonna hear in them the footsteps of Jesus running through the course of history, coming as a baby, then returning to sit on the throne as the ancient of days, and this should inspire our hope. But first, The bad news. Verses 1 through 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. I'll skip to verse 2. I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. If a word was revealed to Daniel, let me ask you, and he's mourning for three weeks. Like not mourning like the first part of the day, but mourning like crying, grieving. Do you think it's good news or bad news? Bad news. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 3, I ate no delicacies, no meat, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. You know it's bad when you don't even go to your essential oils, right? He didn't anoint himself at all, okay? When you cannot get off the couch to go turn on your lavender diffuser, okay? You know this is getting bad. This is Daniel. Verse 4, I'll paraphrase. An angel comes to Daniel, um, you know, puts a dab of chamomile behind his ear. No, doesn't do that. An angel comes to Daniel, begins explaining the, the meaning of his vision. A lot of things in this second vision, I'll tell you, overlap the previous visions we've read about. Therefore, I'll summarize, not read. Um, In fact, all the visions and dreams of Daniel, whether given to uh, pagan kings, whether given to Daniel himself, they talk about a series of world kingdoms that will come and that will go. Okay, Um, Each one oppressive. None of them good regimes, each one oppressive, each one hostile to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, each one persecuting, bringing low Christians. After Babylon, if you'll remember, came Persia. After Persia, Greece. After Greece, Rome. And then after Rome, this final kingdom that Daniel tells us about that's headed by the who? The Antichrist. Okay? Daniel explains to us that certain elements of the first few kingdoms kind of give us a taste of what we're going to experience in the final kingdom led by the Antichrist. Uh, for example, in chapters 7 and 8, we saw that Daniel prophesied that this ruthless king would arise out of Greece who would be particularly hostile toward God's people, and that prophecy was actually fulfilled Directly, about 300 years later, by this man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to power around 160 uh, B.C., and I showed you when we studied chapter 7 and 8, Daniel prophesied that this guy would be particularly blasphemous of God. He was. He was vicious towards God's people. He's been called the Hitler of the Old Testament. He systematically slaughtered in cold blood Tens of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children. He desecrated the temple. If you'll remember, he put a pig on the altar, which to the Jews was highly offensive. He even forced the Jews, he force-fed them pig flesh. He then committed... That doesn't sound like such a bad thing to me, right? Okay? Okay. Somebody shoving bacon in my mouth, like, yeah, this is awesome. But to these folks, uh, this was this was grounds for uh, sacrilege. He then committed what Bible writers call the abomination of desolations. He set up a statue of himself in the holy of holies. He made the Jews bow down to the statue of himself. It's a wonder that God didn't strike him dead. On the spot, you can read about all of this. By the way, in um, First and Second Maccabees, which are historical books that were written by Jews who lived before Christ's first coming, they are not uh, scripture. They do carry a lot of historical information that the Bible does not, so they're helpful. Daniel basically says this: this Antiochus Epiphanes guy, he's a a type. He's a prefiguring of the Antichrist that will come. But the Antichrist will actually be much worse. Daniel explains. Well, I should say I I share that because Daniel 10 talks about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes again, and Daniel describes the, the devastation that he's going to bring toward the Jews. And then in verse 36, I've skipped all that for the sake of time. In verse 36, I want to read to you what happens next. Daniel switches from talking about Antiochus to talking about the Antichrist, this future king who will rule in the future, this king of the north, okay? And the switch happens in verse 36, Then he says this about the Antichrist. This king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods, He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. That is a very encouraging sentence or two, nestled among a lot of discouragement. Did you read that? He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed by God, namely the victory of Christ Jesus that we sang about this morning shall be done. Verse 37. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify who? Himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor, of course. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. What about that verse 39? He'll deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Do you remember how I showed you in Daniel chapter 7 that the Antichrist, we read, will have the eyes of a man, but when you will look behind them, you'll see something that's not human? Okay? The Antichrist is empowered, Daniel is saying here again in the same way, by a foreign God, namely, who? Who powers the Antichrist? Well, Satan himself will. The arch enemy of God, and if you'll recall, in chapter seven or eight, Daniel said three things would characterize the rule of the Antichrist. We see echoes of those in these verses. We we see that he would quote devour much flesh. Chapter 7, verse 25. In other words, he'd aim to, to destroy. He'd carry hatred. He'd carry prejudice. He'd be genocidal. He'd deal in slavery. He'd deal in trafficking. He'd deal in militarism. His aim is to destroy. He will bring all of this. He will commoditize vulnerable individuals. He will commercialize outright with little limitations or safeguards, abortion. All of these are tools inside the Antichrist's arsenal. Secondly, 7 and 8, chapter 7 and 8 said that he would mock, he would doubt God's word. In other words, he would publicly undermine what God has revealed in the scripture about our humanity, about sexuality, about salvation. Okay? He'll try to undermine all these truths. Third, we read in chapter 8, he'll exalt mankind. He'll exalt himself. He'll also try to get people to do the same thing with themselves. Okay? It's almost like the social media age is a prerequisite to this age. What is social media all about? In large part, exalting oneself. Right? Portraying yourself in a way. You know, Brad Paisley wrote a country song, You're So Much Cooler Online. It's true! People are cooler online. People present themselves in a certain way. It's it's the spirit of the Antichrist. They focus on their glory, their accomplishments, their abilities. Now, what I told you in chapter 7, and this is really important, is that while the Antichrist is not here yet. I don't believe that he is. The spirit of the Antichrist, chapter 7 teaches, is here. Certainly. Um, 1 John 2:18, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In other words, the spirit of the Antichrist is here. The, the attitudes of the Antichrist, the values of the Antichrist. What the Antichrist loves, it's already here. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. I told you a few weeks ago uh, that the last 100 years have been the bloodiest years in all of human history. More people have been killed by genocide, war, abortion, violence than any other century in world history. Satan is clearly at work in our lifetime, trying to destroy our flesh. This gets down to things as as commonplace as alcoholism and addiction and pornography and materialism and narcissism. He is working to erode and destroy the foundation of everything that is good. Constantly. That's what Satan is up to. Some of you are experiencing the spirit of the Antichrist, make you doubt God's word. The enemy begins most attacks on Christians by having you question what you've been taught in God's word. It's no different than what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. When Satan said, did God really say? It was a rhetorical question. Satan knew God had said it. But he wanted to challenge, he wanted to get Adam and Eve thinking in a worldly manner. That's happening today. Satan's constantly work, trying to get you to exalt yourself, to think that your agenda is the most important agenda. You know best, right? This is on Instagram reels. This is in consumer driven commercials. This is even in things as, as seemingly innocent as leadership seminars, where you get Fixated on yourself as the solution to your business, to your affairs, Satan will whisper in your ear that you know what's best for your life, that nobody else is looking out for you, that you can only be happy when your kingdom comes and your will is done. So make no mistake about it, church, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. The Bible calls Satan the prince of what? The power, or prince of darkness, another name, the prince of the power of the air. The Bible also says he roams about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The bad news, I told you in, in chapter 7, is that the Antichrist is coming near, and things are only going to get worse. Okay, Daniel says at the beginning of chapter 12 about the end. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Critics say today about um, evangelical Christians in particular that we have in America in particular a persecution complex. That's what critics say of us, that we always imagine that everyone is out to get us, to harm us. And honestly, in some ways, it is a valid critique. There's validity to that. Um, We can be a little paranoid at times. We can be oversensitive at times. We can think we're being persecuted when, in fact, we're often not. Being persecuted, especially in the United States, but but we err on that side of the feeling that we're being persecuted at times because we understand rightly who is at work in the world, and that it's God's enemy, and and what his game is. Uh, we, we also err on that side at times because persecution against Christians around the world, I hope you're aware, is as high as it's ever been. Open Doors, a ministry that helps the persecuted church around the world, tells us that today 340 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution. That is the highest in history. Last year, almost 5,000 Christians were martyred because of their faith. Over 4,000 Christian churches last year were burned. Another 4,000 Christians were imprisoned last year, many without trial, because of their faith. And yes, it is true that even in our own country, where we are supposed to have these guaranteed freedoms of religion that we are starting to see, it is true, some of that erode. Already in some places, if you hold to what scriptures teach about sexuality, if you hold to what scriptures teach about gender, if you hold to what scriptures teach about the covenant of marriage or about the way of salvation, that it's through Jesus alone, you can be labeled as a bigot, you can be canceled, you can even be fired. George Yancey, Dr. George Yancey, an African-American professor, wrote this new book on anti-Christian discrimination in America, and he points out that 32% of all Americans that uh, identify that theological conservative Christians are their least likely least, excuse me, favorite group in society. Let me say that again. A third of the American public feel that conservative Christians are their least favorite subgroup in society. 32%. By comparison, only 31% of Muslims are identified that way. Still significant. No doubt. Um... So it's fair, Dr. Yancey concludes, to say that if we're concerned about anti-Muslim prejudice in the United States, and we should be concerned about that as Christians, that we should at least be aware of anti-Christian prejudice in the United States. Uh, Dr. Yancey documents with a pretty uh, impressive compilation of statistics that being a professing Christian will hurt you in the academic world. Anybody say I have kids? Where this has been held against them in a classroom, that that happens, okay? In the academic world, in also the political world, in the uh, world of entertainment, of course, in also uh, in lately the medical world, the medical world, and even in in an increasing way the business world. Please don't understand. Please understand. I don't want to contribute to conspiracy theories. Your pastor hates conspiracy theories. People that are conspiracy theorists drive me up a wall. Okay, I want you to know that about me. Um, I will say, in fact, I'd argue that the spirit of the Antichrist is every much involved with QAnon as he is
1: with the ACLU a void of truth is a void of truth
0: there is untruth today everywhere on the left on the right any culture shaping institution that fosters hate that fosters what is contrary to god's word that exalts man over jesus christ has the spirit of the Antichrist. And I'll tell you this, make no mistake about it, we are going to continually send our kids into hostile places. Okay? Accept it. Um, We can't be content as parents of kids that we're trying to raise in Jesus with a a thin layer of religiosity. We can no longer be content with kids that don't cuss, with kids that don't have premarried sex, with kids that know how to vote the way that we tell them to vote, we can no longer contend just for those things. We need to teach them that Jesus is worth living for and that Jesus is worth dying for. If that's what this comes to, even if the world takes everything away from us, Jesus is... Worth it. He's worth it. And so we read all this and we say, Man, no wonder Daniel was grieving when he's seeing all this take place in visions. What a dark view of the future. And we should grieve too. Jesus said in John 15, Be assured, in this world you will have tribulation. Sometimes in church, we are in such a hurry to rejoice that we overlook people's grief. Some of you coming in this weekend are facing pressure at your job. You're facing suffering from the scorn of friends for the sake of godliness, maybe. Maybe even we've had many come to the Mill Church, at least a couple dozen, whose parents haven't approved, whose family members haven't approved of their decision. Because they are of another line of faith tradition or no faith tradition at all you say pastor what's the good news anybody ready for the good news okay i'm so glad you asked this is great um i'm gonna give you two things this morning that are good news number one the suffering is limited the suffering is limited Daniel drops little hints showing us that the suffering is limited. Look at chapter 11, verse 36 again. He shall prosper, the Antichrist, until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed by God shall be done. There will be a time when the enemy's wrath is completed in Jesus' name. There will be a time when what has been promised by God will be fulfilled. You may be waxing on and off one day, And you're going to be standing with Jesus in the ring, looking down at the defeated Satan and his minions another day. Okay? You may be covered in asphalt in Radiator Springs one day, but another day you're going to be taking your victory lap in Jesus' name. Your suffering, though it is real, though it is painful, will be limited in scope. Its conclusion has been fixed in time by God Himself. That is encouraging. It's not gonna last forever. And not an ounce of suffering will come more than what God has intended. That were promised. What's incredible about this book of Daniel is how specific God said that this time of suffering will last. Put on your seatbelt for a minute, okay? Because I'm going to get specific. Um, You're going to say, if you've never heard this before, oh my gosh, this is in the Bible, this is crazy. Okay, here we go. Chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy weeks. Everybody say 70 weeks. A week in Jewish language is a period of seven. Okay? This is what we know. It's symbolic. It could be seven days in some places. In other places, as it means here, it's seven years. It is a week of seven years, if you will, okay? So, how many weeks of seven years are prophesied? 70 weeks. What's 70 times seven? So, we're talking about 490. Some of you are carrying the one right now, aren't you? 490 years. What happens at the end of those 490 years? Rebellion will be brought to an end, the scripture says. A stop will be put to sin, Daniel said. Iniquity will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. All biblical prophecy will be fulfilled, and the most holy place will be restored. And when do those 490 years start? It's a great question. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay? 62 plus 7 is what? 69. So we're almost to the 70 weeks if we start doing the math. The clock starts, Daniel said. Are you ready? I'm going to try to simplify this as best as possible. The clock starts ticking at the issuance, excuse me, the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. That decree was given by King Artaxerxes of Persia around 445 BC. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2. So from that date, there will be seven weeks plus 62 weeks. Seven weeks is 49 years. That's roughly how long it took to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 62 more seven-year periods after that. Now watch this, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So seven weeks and 62 weeks is 69 weeks of seven years. Or 483 years, if we use the Jewish system, of a 360-day year. 483 years after 445 B.C., when this announcement was made about the restoration of Jerusalem, lands us at 32 A.D.
1: What happened in the year 32 A.D.? Jesus Christ died. So if you haven't followed any of that, here's a summary. God gave Daniel the date that Jesus Christ would die 480 years before it happened. It was a part of God's plan. See. Then, verse 26,
0: And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Romans did destroy the temple in 70 A.D. That happened. Verse 27, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, Okay, And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Man, I love that language. Until the decreed end, until the promised end from God is poured out on the desolator. So after the anointed one, Jesus Christ, was cut off in 32 AD, AD, excuse me, there's one more week left in Daniel 70 weeks. 69 have come, 69 have gone. There's a couple different interpretations. One interprets that last week as metaphorical, figurative, in that it would be elastic and stretched out over many, 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 many years some of which we're currently living in. The other, I think, more favorable interpretation is that the book of Revelation chronicles the events that are going to happen in that very uh, seven-year period called the tribulation, the seven years, and that there's been a pause, if you will, in the 70 weeks. So there were 69 weeks, there was a big pause, And then the one week, the 70th week, it's called the seven years of tribulation that Revelation talks about will begin in the future. But know that the suffering is limited. Here's the second and last point. The resurrection is eternal. The resurrection is eternal. Daniel tells us about this time of untold suffering, and he says, but at that time, all of your people who are found written in the book, I want to read that again, All of your people who are found written in the book will escape. Daniel 12.2, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, some to disgrace and eternal content. In other words, just as a time of persecution is decreed, so is a resurrection. As certain is our coming suffering, so is our current, or coming, I should say, resurrection. The ancient of days who sits on his throne says, don't worry, I've decreed it all. I'm giving you this kick in the final moment of your battle. And it's a resurrection over death and suffering and into new life with me forever. That's coming. Don't lose sight of that. I will restore it all. I've already decreed it all. Church, our hope is not in perfect marriages. Did you know your pastor does not have one of those? Did you know that we argue, Shannon and I, from time to time? I hope you know that. Okay? You're not alone. All right? All right? Nobody's got, our hope isn't in that. Our hope isn't in prosperous business. Our hope ultimately isn't in political power. Our hope is in the certainty that Satan and death and sin are defeated by Jesus in the last days. That's our hope. He'll restore it all. Here's what you need to know. Verse 2 says, many who sleep in the dust will awake. That word many is haunting. Because what does that word mean? By
1: contrast, not everyone, not everyone will find their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life.
0: Not everyone will will find their name written in the book and escape. The Book of Life contains a list of those and only those who have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have repented of their sins. If we were privy to flip through the book this morning, would your name be there? In the Lamb's book of life, have you repented of your sins to Jesus? Have you said, I'm sorry? Have you said, forgive me? Have you said, I believe in your literal bodily resurrection over death and that one day I too will be resurrected into new life? No matter the darkness of life. No matter the suffering of life. I mean, whose names are in the book? That's an important question to ask. Is it church members? No. It has nothing to do with you going through basic process and filling out the membership covenant. That's ridiculous. You know, my guy Clayton King that I listened to growing up said, just because you park in a parking garage doesn't mean your car. Just because... You go to a hen house, it doesn't make you a chicken, right? Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. What about those uh, who um, live mostly good lives? No, has nothing to do with how much you've given to United Way. Has nothing to do with how many service hours you've put in. What is it then? It's those who have repented of their sin and said, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I trust in you for salvation. I can't save myself. I need a savior. Will you bow your head today? Is there anybody here who would say, Pastor, I'm just not sure that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to make sure of that this morning. I want to profess Jesus this morning. I want to believe in a crucified and resurrected Savior. Would you just look up
1: and acknowledge that? Just lock eyes with me today. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Awesome. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Awesome. Wonderful. Anybody else? So
0: four people, everybody look up here, want to give their lives to Jesus today. The Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice more when one lost sheep is found than when 99 religious sheep who have never been lost come into church. It's amazing. So if you love Jesus or if you've lifted your eyes, and want to become a Christ follower, will you just pray this prayer after me? Both those who are loved by God, children of God, and those who said, today's my day. I want to become a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. Heavenly Father, I trust you. I believe that you sent Jesus from heaven to earth to die For my sin. I believe he really died. I believe he really rose again. He defeated death. For me. He loves me. Knows the hairs on my head. Knew me before I was in my mother's womb.
1: Thank you. Father, I believe, I receive
0: salvation. Forgive me, make me new, give me a new heart, change me from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you want some good news? Four people became Christians this morning and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. That's awesome. That's awesome.